Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. This lecture covers the two main types of criticisms leveled against Christianity during the Enlightenment period, biblical and philosophical. In addition, you'll see how some Christians dug their heels in and worked hard to defend their faith, while others gave ground but reinterpreted Christianity in a way that would not only survive the criticisms but also attract cultured despisers. We'll conclude with a brief sketch of Unitarianism in America. This is Lecture 13 of a History of Christianity class called 500, from Martin Luther to Joel Osteen. Here now is Podcast 129, Losing Faith. So tonight what I want to talk about is the movement, or several movements, that worked against Christianity. And then Christian responses to these major uh, movements of thought. To start off, though, I wanted to just briefly read to you a couple of quotations from people in the 1600s that express what they believed about the Bible. So this is by Johann Quinstedt. He said, The Holy Spirit did not simply inspire the meaning or sense of the words contained in Scripture, which the prophets and apostles then set forth, expressed and embellished with their own words by their own will. So he said the Holy Spirit did not do it that way. The Holy Spirit supplied, inspired, and dictated the very words and each and every utterance to the writers. So that's a position of a Christian in the 1600s. Here's another statement from the Helvetic Consensus of 1675. The Hebrew original of the Old Testament is not only in its consonants, but in its vowels, uh, either the vowel points themselves or at least the power of the points, not only in its matter, but in its words inspired of God. The general idea about Scripture in the 1600s, at least from these two examples, is that it is inspired, authoritative, that it is something that comes from God as opposed to a human creation. And that changes a lot in the 18th century and 19th century and then, of course, the 20th century. One of the things that's really interesting, though, is that as the attack uh, of the Enlightenment and deism comes, at the same time in the 18th century we have pietism, which is a, uh, a movement where people are starting to really dig in and take their Christianity seriously. And then in the 19th century, when we have higher criticism developing against the Bible, we also have revivalism and the Second Great Awakening happening at the same time. And then in the 20th century, when we have secularization, we also have the birth of Pentecostalism and the charismatic movement. So in each of these centuries, the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries, we have both movements that are criticizing the Bible as well as movements that are bolstering it and putting it to use in the everyday life of someone. This is a, a painting of, uh, of a French salon and a conversation happening there. And this is uh, symbolic of what is called the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment occurred, roughly speaking, from 1650 to 1890. It's not an organized movement. 
and it's not, there's not like a leader that we could say started the Enlightenment, but it's a current of thought. There have been major changes in science, philosophy, society, and politics. It culminated in the French Revolution when they got rid of the king, and they got rid of the privileges of the nobility, and they challenged, at least at some point, got rid of the authority of the church as well. The Enlightenment is characterized by a stress on reason over everything else. So rather than the traditional medieval model, which is the church has authority because it's the church, now it's, well, does it make sense? And if it makes sense, then we'll believe it. And if not, then how is it you have authority again? And so the Enlightenment challenges a lot of things. The Protestant movement had advocated individual freedom of conscience. If you remember right all the way back to where we started with Martin Luther standing there before that courtroom, well, it wasn't a courtroom really, but that council, they, they said to him, you have to believe these things. You have to believe these things. This is what the church teaches. You, have to, you don't get to decide what to believe. And Luther says, unless I'm convinced by reason and scripture, I can't go against my own conscience. And so what starts out as a challenge to Catholic uh, corruptions, is what Luther would call them, Catholic corruptions, uh, ends up being a challenge against the entire Catholic Church. And then, over time, this comes to be a challenge against Christianity itself in the period of the Enlightenment. And so, the Enlightenment thinkers are critical of superstition, enthusiasm, fanaticism, and supernaturalism. They want to, they're, they're not necessarily atheists, but they want to purify religion. They want to make it rational or natural. They want to exclude the supernatural from history. Uh, at least some of them do. Other Enlightenment thinkers accept the supernatural. Uh, philosopher is no longer considered the handmaiden of theology. Now it's an independent field. And so a lot of the names I'm going to be listening to you are philosophers. Philosophers are thinkers who wrestle with the, how is the world really? I mean, what is it really made of? How do we think about the world? How do we think about God? How do we think about how to live the good life? These kinds of questions are the business of the philosophers all of a sudden. And so we have three phases that Alistair McGrath outlines. The first is demonstrating the rational nature of Christian belief. I had mentioned John Locke before. He's the one that wrote the book, The Reasonableness of Christianity. And he's actually a conservative, biblically speaking, because he accepts the full authority of Scripture and the divine origin of Scripture, and then he seeks to show how Scripture is actually reasonable and we should believe it as an Enlightenment person. Um, and so he thinks the, the miracles are not unreasonable, because if there's a God, then of course a God could produce miracles. And he, he thinks that Jesus' most important contribution, however, is his ethical teachings. Then the second phase is deriving Christian beliefs from reason alone. So not even doing business with the Bible, but just using your mind to, to uh, figure out Christian thinking. The Bible is at this point in the Enlightenment seen as subordinate to reason. So rather than holding reason and revelation in tension, now it's reason over revelation. And then the third phase is reason sitting in judgment over revelation. And this is the best exemplified by the set in 1751, the French Encyclopedia came out, multi-volume set. This is sort of like the original encyclopedia. 
the, the idea was to cover all human knowledge, and it was written by uh, or supervised by atheist Denis Diderot, uh, or Denis Diderot. And the philosophes are the, the people who contributed to this encyclopedia. What they wanted to do was describe every field of knowledge using natural thinking without ever turning to God to explain anything. And so this, uh, this, this work, this set of uh, encyclopedia, uh, was something that urged toleration and uh, it attacked the clergy and it attacked biblical Christianity, revealed religion. This is just a, a little brief thumbnail sketch of the Enlightenment, but it's a movement of thought among highly uh, educated thinkers of the time in the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries. Which leads us to deism. Deism happened mostly in the 17th and 18th centuries. And this was a movement that said that revelation, ritual, and traditional practices should be minimized or written off as superstitions. This is uh, a group of people that would criticize clergy for keeping people in bondage, uh, monopolizing truth, using their authority. They want freedom. They want religious toleration. And they reduce religion just to morality and universal principles. The idea that all religions contain the same basic moral principles comes from uh, the deism of the 17th and 18th century. It kind of fizzles out deism, and it's not really with us in any, any substantial way today. In 1738, Pope Clement XII denounced deism, and Thomas Jefferson himself was a deist. And he had taken a razor and glue to his, to his Bible, and he cut out all the miracles and made his own edited version of the Bible and focused on the moral teachings of Jesus, the ethics of Jesus. That's, that's what really matters, would uh, be what Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin would say. Now I want to talk about philosophical criticisms of Christianity and then biblical criticisms of Christianity. And I, I struggle to define these two different things, but if, if you think of a double-barrel shotgun, these are what's loaded in each of those barrels, okay? One barrel is firing the philosophical criticism, and the other is firing a biblical criticism. And together, they're a potent combination, and there are two major responses. One response is, fight them. Another response is, join them. And so Christians respond in different ways and different movements come out and a lot of the culture wars that we're familiar with in our time between liberal and conservative Christians are really responses to these philosophical and biblical criticisms. So, and they both have long histories and there are lots of people's names that you probably aren't familiar with, but uh, it's the story, so here we go. Baruch Spinoza is the man in the painting here in 1656, got excommunicated from Talmud Torah congregation. He was a Dutch philosopher and a lens grinder. He made lenses for microscopes and telescopes. He challenged the transcendence of God, the idea that God is other, God is in, in his heaven above. And he reduced God to an abstract or impersonal aspect of nature. People fight over whether Baruch Spinoza was an atheist or a pantheist. And I'm not, I don't have a horse in that race, you know what I mean? So I'm just going to let that, let that go. 
But let's, let's just put it this way. Anyone talking about philosophical criticisms of Christianity, they always start with Baruch Spinoza. And also, anyone talking about biblical criticism of Christianity, they always start with Baruch Spinoza. So Spinoza is, is, is the starting place for both of these attacks against Christianity. Uh, actually, in his case, it was against Judaism because he wasn't a Christian at all. Then the next major, major uh, mind here is David Hume, who in 1777 writes and publishes The Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion. He's a Scottish Enlightenment philosopher, and he says that we only have knowledge of what we experience. He's, this is what we call an empiricist. So rather than uh, basing our knowledge on authority or what God says or some other like logical deduction or induction, he would say it's based on experience. He criticized the argument from design. The argument from design is you look at the world, the world is well designed. Like if you look at how the planets go around the sun and how they never crash into each other and they have this predictable motion and everything, it looks like a well designed system that functions well. But he would criticize that, that God's not the designer because we cannot, he attacks cause and effect. We cannot know for sure that this effect has God as a cause. And it's a long, drawn-out, complicated argument that you're free to read because basically all these books are free online because they're not copyrighted anymore. You can even get the audio version for free as well on LibriVox.org if you would like to uh, challenge Hume. Uh, he said miracles were made up or based on hearsay, or the result of ignorance of natural laws, and that the miracles of one religion invalidate the miracles of another. Hume is absolutely huge even to this day as far as what non-Christians or, or anti-Christians would lean on to justify their rejection of the Bible and people that believe in miracles. In 1781, Immanuel Kant, which I love this, painting of him, credited Hume for waking him up from his dogmatic slumbers and produced his book, The Critique of Pure Reason. Kant argued that you can only know things as we experience them, not as they truly are. All you know is what you know of them. You don't know what they truly are because they're external to you. You can't accept traditional existence arguments for the God's existence because they use reason to prove something external exists, and you can't do that. He proves that you can't do that in all these pages long of this book, Critique of Pure Reason. In 1841, moving along, we get Ludwig Feuerbach, the, who produces The Essence of Christianity. He argues that there's no transcendent dimension to reality. In other words, what you see is what you get. There is no spirit, no invisible forces. I don't know how he dealt with wind. No angels, no demons, no God. Again, th these are philosophical thinkers that are figuring these things out in their systems. And he says that religion is just the projection of human values. In 1848, the bearded Karl Marx produced the Communist Manifesto. He was the son of a Jewish lawyer who converted to Lutheranism to avoid persecution, but was really an atheist. He's strongly influenced by Feuerbach's theory of alienation. And he argued that if we changed society, that would change beliefs. Most people think if you change somebody's beliefs, and we change enough people's beliefs, it'll change society. Marx argues the opposite way. He says, no, we need to change society. 
because that's what forms people's beliefs. Beliefs are socially constructed. And so I have a, a quote for you by Karl Marx, if I can. This is his famous statement. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature. <laughs> How far we've come, huh? Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. The abolition of religion as the illusory happiness of the people is the demand for their real happiness. To call on them to give up their illusions about their condition is to call on them to give up a condition that requires illusions. So that's a famous statement. Religion is the opium of the masses. You know, it's just something that sort of calms people down and helps them to not realize they're being oppressed and rise up in revolution. In 1882, Frederick Nietzsche came out with his book, The Gay Science, which has nothing to do with what we would think of as gay people or anything like that. It's, uh, we might translate it, the joyous wisdom. Science is the word for knowledge. Um, and so he came out with this book in 1882, and he argued that since God doesn't exist, picking up on all these other thinkers before him, we must make up our own system of values. He's hostile to Christians because he thought they were holding progress back, and his whole idea was the will to power. That's the driving force between, behind all of us. He proclaimed the death of God in his parable of the madman, which goes as follows. I'm just going to read to you an excerpt here. So he's leaning on Kant, he's leaning on Hume, and he's saying, look, we, we know there's no God. What does that mean for us now, that there is no God? And so he is working that out in this little parable. Have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours, ran to the marketplace and cried incessantly, I seek God, I seek God. As many of those who did not believe in God were standing around just then, he provoked much laughter. Has he got lost, asked one. Did he lose his way like a child, asked another. Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage, immigrated? Thus they yelled and laughed. The madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Whither is God, he cried. I will tell you, we have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers. But how did we do this? How could we drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What are we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Whither are we moving? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually, backward, sideward, forward, in all directions? Is there still any up or down? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is not night continually closing in on us? Do we not need to light lanterns in the morning? Do we hear nothing as yet of the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? Do we smell nothing as yet of the divine decomposition? Gods too decompose. God is dead. God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was the holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives? Who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? There has never been a greater deed, and whoever is born after us for the sake of this deed, he will belong 
to a higher history than all history hitherto. Here the madman fell silent, looked again at his listeners, and they too were silent, and stared at him in astonishment. At last he threw his lantern on the ground, and it broke into pieces and went out. I have come too early, he said to them. My time is not yet. This tremendous event is still on its way, still wandering. It has not yet reached the ears of men. So that's Frederick Nietzsche trying to work out the implications of all this philosophy, of all these philosophical criticisms of God, and struggling with what comes to be labeled a philosophy of nihilism, uh, in which uh, there is a lot of depressing thought, as you can see here. That's barrel one. You ready for barrel two of the shotgun? Here, here next we have another painting of Baruch Spinoza. 1670, he produced Theological Political Treatise. So I'm backing up and restarting the tape here, but looking at the biblical criticism. He rejected Moses as the author of the Torah. Um, and he said the Bible had contradictions. When I sat in my Old Testament class at uh, a liberal university, this was one of the first people they mentioned, and, they, and, and the lady said, well, of course, we know the Bible's full of contradictions. Ever since Baruch Spinoza, we've known that. So, I mean, I'm, this is in the 21st century. This is what my Old Testament professor said. So, these people are still very much with us. In 1678, however, Richard Simon, or Simon, a French priest, produced the critical history of the Old Testament. And he's known as the father of biblical criticism. He proposed that Moses wrote the law code, but several others wrote other parts of the Pentateuch. His work was condemned. In 1774, G.E. Lessing popularized the ideas of H.S. Rimerus, who argued for a source behind the Synoptic Gospels. The Synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So rather than saying that God inspired each of those three writers, he's saying, no, there's a source behind them that they're all depending on. He said, Christianity's ability to meet universal needs is what matters, not its factual basis. Did you catch that? So it's a very subtle thing. So he's, he's not necessarily trying to destroy Christianity. He is a Christian. But he's saying what really matters is how Christianity meets our needs as people, not the facts, the factual basis. He drove a wedge between the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. And this is something that still to this day a lot of people will talk about. The Jesus of history versus the Christ of faith. The Christ of faith is seen as the Christ that the creeds defined later on. That, uh, the idea that he is the second person of the Trinity and all that. That's the Christ of faith. But the Jesus of history would never have said that. This is the first, uh, at least that I know, person who drives that wedge between the two. He, just, he says that, this is Lessing again, that scholarship's purpose is to reconstruct the historical Jesus. So the idea is the Gospels are overlaid with mythological elements and ideas that came later and that we need to peel back the layers of tradition to get to the historical uh, Jesus. In 1827, Heinrich Paulus publishes The Life of Jesus. And this man did not believe in miracles. Could you imagine trying to produce a biography of Jesus? the healer, the exorcist, the miracle worker who walked on water, and you don't believe in miracles? How are you going to deal with all that? Well, this is what he did. The feeding of the 5,000 
was the result of Jesus handing out some food and then everyone in that crowd realized what was happening and so they all took out their own food and looking back on it they said well it was a miracle a miracle of sharing right as opposed to multiplication uh, when Jesus is walking on water what really happened is they were rowing or sailing or whatever trying to trying to get across the lake and the storm was so bad there was some reason why they thought they had made a lot of progress but they were still actually at the shore and they didn't realize it and so Jesus walked to them but the water wasn't that deep when he came walking on the water and so when Peter came out he just kind of fumbled around and Jesus was like stand up man and he stood up and, and they walked to shore and that's what really happened there. So he's, he's saying that. The theory for the resurrection is that Jesus passed out on the cross and that they took him down and in the cool of the tomb he revived. And uh, although he had swooned, he revived and he was able to push the stone away on his own and appear to his disciples in severe need of medical treatment and they thought he was raised from the dead. That's one approach. Uh, later on, David Friedrich Strauss in 1835 produces his life of Jesus critically examined and he uh, is reacting against Paulus and saying come on Paulus that's ridiculous what we have is not impossible events that need to all be explained but what we have our myths that communicate a great truth and you're not supposed to take them literally and so the idea is that when Jesus is walking on the water that whole account read it as it really is but Try to, try to detect what the, the theological point is. The theological point here is nothing to do with Jesus walking on water. It's got to do with recognizing that in the storms of life, Jesus can be there as our guide. Right? And so that's the mythological approach of Strauss. He agreed that miracles don't happen. And we had to find natural, but he, he found the other naturalistic explanations ridiculous. Uh, his, his book was massive, 1,500 pages, examined every story in the Gospels. Um, a lot of these guys are Germans. This biblical criticism comes out of Germany, and then it, it makes its way out into England and America. At least, you know, that's the story we're telling because we're English speakers. But it, it starts a lot in Germany. In 1840s, the Tübingen School flourishes under the leadership of Ferdinand Christian Bauer. He did not like the idea of Schleiermacher. Schleiermacher is a guy I'm going to come to in a little bit here. Kind of a funny last name, long Schleiermacher. Schleiermacher had, had decided that Christianity really should, should emphasize the feeling of absolute dependence on God. And Bauer didn't like that. What he, what he wanted to do was take the ideas of a philosopher named Hegel who said, what you have in history is synthesis, and antithesis. And so the way uh, Bauer reasoned it out is you have early Jewish Christianity, which is like James and Peter, and then you have the antithesis of that, which is Hellenistic Christianity, Greek Christianity, represented by Paul, and there is a conflict between the two, and then you have synthesis, which is the book of Acts. And so he came up with his theory of how the history worked its way out, and then he dated all of the New Testament documents to fit his theory. And so he put the book of Acts in the second century, a very late date that nobody would accept today. Uh, even atheists wouldn't accept it today. But he starts this whole movement that, to this day, is pretty typical in uh, many universities. And then in 1859, I put this under biblical criticism. This is Charles Darwin. 
uh, because his theory of evolution challenged the age that the Bible says things are. Okay, so it, I wasn't sure, do I put this in philosophy? Do I put it in biblical? I don't know, I just put it here. But in 1859, Charles Darwin, of course, an agnostic, published on the origin of species by means of natural selection or the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. That's the full title. In 1871, he produced The Descent of Man and the Selection in the Relation to Sex. And he proposed the theory that all things come from one common ancestor that slowly changed over time through natural selection. And his theory required the Earth to be a lot older because you need more time for his theory to happen. And so the old idea of Archbishop Usher who in 1652 dated creation to 4004 BC was thrown out the window and this came to be known as a biblical criticism, a criticism against the Bible, especially in the 20th century in America and Tennessee, which I'm going to get to, 1925. I got to go a little faster. 1878, Julius Wellhausen produced what's called the documentary hypothesis, absolutely considered to be the way to read the first five books of the Bible today in universities across, across the land. He said that Moses did not write the first five books. Rather, they are written by four authors, J, E, D, and P, stand for the Yahwist, the Eloist, the Deuteronomist, and the priestly author. And so the idea is that these are four different authors who wrote different parts of Genesis to Deuteronomy. And then a later redactor edited these narratives together, interwove them, and that's how we got the first five books of the Bible. It's, a, it's an example of applying evolutionary thinking to the Bible. So you have the idea that religions should evolve too, just like the animal kingdom. Um, in 1881, William Robertson brought Wellhausen's idea into the Encyclopedia Britannica. And so now people consulting the Encyclopedia Britannica on how what the Old Testament is and how we got it and everything. Now they're reading this hypothesis of Wellhausen as if it is, in fact, the decided view of the day. This caused a huge controversy and he lost his professor, professorial chair for heresy. Uh, although he claimed that he, he agreed with the Westminster Confession of Faith, Robertson. He was just trying to clear away obstacles to belief. In the 1890s, we have the History of Religion School Religions Geschichtliche Schule. There's a Schule in the front row, so that's for him. At the University of Göttingen, uh, they tried to find parallels to other religions in history to disprove the uniqueness of the Bible. And so, you know, people say, "Oh, well, look at the, the flood of Noah." They say, "Well, there was the Gilgamesh epic." You know, well, look at the look at the law of Moses. Well, there's Hammurabi's code, and they're looking at these other parallels to try to um, challenge the uniqueness of the Bible. Still, again, stuff I've, I've encountered in the university. In 1906, we have Albert Schweitzer. It's a word that means Swiss. I guess he was Swiss. He published The Quest for the Historical Jesus, a critical study of its progress from Rimeris to Reed. And so he accused people. Now, the quest for the historical Jesus is people trying to peel back the layers of the Gospels that they think are not historical and reconstruct the life of Jesus which had been going on for quite a while. 
And so he summarizes the work of all these questers, accuses them all of reconstructing Jesus in their own image, and essentially ends the quest for the historical Jesus with his book, The Quest for the Historical Jesus, in 1906. He says that Jesus is not like us. He's not a liberal Protestant. Jesus is an apocalyptic prophet who thought the end of the world was about to come and who preached about the kingdom of God. He thought that Jesus' ethics were temporary. They weren't meant to be lived out long term, just temporary until the kingdom would come. And that Jesus threw himself on the wheel of history and got ground to powder underneath it. In other words, he tried to bring history to culmination, the kingdom to come, and he died instead. Isn't it so sad? And so he stopped focusing on Jesus and, and uh, scholarship, theological scholarship, and decided that he should live out his philosophical principle, which was reverence for life. And he moved to Africa and became a medical missionary. And he took care of sick people the rest of his life. Kind of left the scene, so to speak. And uh, so now we talk about the response. Okay, so we have bar barrel one, barrel two, two pretty potent uh, shots there. And uh, so here are two responses. One response is fight them. And when you fight somebody, it's helpful to, to speak the same language that, as they are. And so that's what we saw in 1695 with John Locke in his book, The Reasonableness of Christianity, was using enlightenment thinking and reasoning to prove Christianity. And then in 1736, we have the English bishop Joseph Butler, who comes out with an analogy of religion, natural and revealed to the constitution and course of nature. He said that God is the same one who is revealed in religion and nature. So what all you scientists are discovering is really God's universe. It's not some other natural realm excluded from God. And he used probabil probabilistic reasoning to convince deists to come back to the faith. Um, in 1802, William Paley came out with a book called Natural Theology, or Evidences of the Existence and Attributes of the Deity. And he used the famous watchmaker argument. Suppose that you're walking along the beach and you come across a watch. Would you say that that watch naturally occurred there? That it sort of randomly, over time, and eons, and pressure and water and sand that it formed that watch spontaneously? Of course not. The watch evidences a certain level of order and design. Therefore, there must be a watchmaker. And so that's William Paley's uh, famous argument. In 1874, Charles Hodge published the book, What is Darwinism? And he argued that Darwinism was just atheism. And he was the president of Princeton Theological Seminary who defended biblical infallibility, the idea that the Bible doesn't have mistakes in it. In 1887, another one of these uh, fight against the criticism guys is Benjamin B. Warfield, frequently called B.B. Warfield. In 1887, he became the president of Princeton Theological Seminary. He defended inerrancy and emphasized the authoritative view of the Bible against emotionalism and rationalism. So he's almost going back to a medieval approach where it's like, it's authoritative because it's from God, and that's it. As opposed to, well, it has an emotional impact on me, so that's why I believe in it. Or there are all these logical arguments that prove it's true, and that's why I believe in it. He is going to emphasize the authority of it. On the flip side, the other response is to join them, to join the attacks. So this is F.D.E. Schleiermacher, um, and he is, uh, in 1822, putting out the book the Christian faith according to the principles of the Protestant church. 
He was raised in an intense pietist atmosphere. I'm going to talk about the pietist movement after the break. He was a professor at Halle, and he rejected the narrowness of it, but he embraced the experiential aspect. So he's very focused on the experience of Christianity. Uh, he thinks that the arguments of these critics are valid. And so what he's doing is he's trying to figure out, well, how can we still be Christians, considering the fact that the Bible is disproved and all these philosophers are attacking God? Well, how can we still be Christians? Well, what is Christianity? And so he redefines Christianity as the um, experience of absolute dependence on God. That's what the essence of Christianity is, says Schleiermacher. He drew on Kant's rejection of natural theology, and he focused on the interior aspects of Christianity. A lot of these guys had criticized saying you know something exterior to yourself. So he's like, fine, I know it inside myself. Argue me out of that. And so this feeling of absolute dependence, he argues, is universal to all humanity, and that Jesus is unique because, not because he's Messiah, not because he died for our sins, but because he perfectly realized the feeling of absolute dependence on God. And so he uh, recast theology as subjective, not objective, and basically said salvation is entering into Christ's perfect God consciousness. In 1852, Albert Rischel taught that faith based on value judgments, not facts about Jesus, is the way to go. Uh, the kingdom of God is a community of brotherly love focused on Jesus' ethics, not miracles. We're not going to talk about the miracles. We're just going to focus on the teaching of Jesus and how it affects us as a community. So that's another approach. Adolf Harnack, in 1886, began publishing his History of Dogma. And he argued that Paul changed the religion of Jesus into a religion about Jesus. Did you catch that? So rather than looking at the religion of Jesus, what we have from the Apostle Paul is a religion about Jesus. He rejected the Gospel of John. He thought the Greeks had, the Greek philosophy had significantly corrupted early Christian thinking about Jesus, uh, especially the doctrine of the Trinity. He believed that the essence of Christianity, so, but he is a Christian, so he's criticizing these things. He's like, yeah, you're right, you know, the Gospel of John, let's get rid of that. He, I, I have a, here, let's uh, show you this quote by Adolf Harnack. He says, that the earth in its course stood still, that a she-ass spoke, that a storm was quieted by a word we do not believe, and we shall never again believe. But that the lame walked, the blind saw, and the deaf heard will not be so summarily dismissed as an illusion. So he's kind of in this, this is what we call liberal Protestantism, this middle zone where he's accepting a lot of these criticisms, but at the other hand he's holding on to some sort of faith, and so he reduces his faith, not to the experience of the dependence on God, but he reduces it to the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man, the worth of each soul, and love rather than law. And if you have those things, you've got true Christianity, says Adolf Harnack. In 1917, Walter Rauschenbusch came out with his book, A Theology for the Social Gospel. He's an American Baptist who was influential in the social gospel music, uh, not music, uh, social gospel movement, who focused on fixing social problems, human, like humanitarian needs, as opposed to worrying about, is the Bible really true? What is the correct doctrine? And these other things. And so that's a, a brief sketch of liberal Protestantism. It's very much still with us, and it very much dominates most seminaries in the uh, United States. So let's talk about the seminaries. Let's talk about the universities. 
in this, in this time period, in the uh, 1800s especially, people were shifting from rural areas. This is after the industrial and during the Industrial Revolution. They're, they're switching from rural areas to urban areas. And higher education suddenly becomes a priority. If you're a farmer, you don't need a college degree to milk a cow. But if you're going to work in a city, suddenly you might need a college degree in order to just beat out somebody else and get a decent wage. A lot of these fabulously wealthy businessmen end up pouring tons of money into universities. For, I'll just list a few of these guys. Ezra Cornell, John Hopkins, Cornelius Vanderbilt, Leyland Stanford, James Duke, John D. Rockefeller, all American businessmen who founded universities in America. Do you think they're founding universities to train clergy? No, they're, they're really wealthy business people that need workers that are qualified to work in their businesses. In 1839, and this is just an example of this, 1839, 51 of the 54 university presidents were clergymen. So the idea of higher education was dominated by people that were ordained in the service of God. Dominated. 51 of 54 were clergymen. There was, a, at this time, though, a pressure to run schools as businesses. And from 1870 to 1930, we went from 2% to 12% in the universities. So this really mushrooms. In 1865, Andrew Dickinson White said, he's the first president of Cornell, he said, the purpose of the university is to afford an asylum for science, where truth shall be sought for truth's sake, where it shall not be the main purpose of the faculty to stretch or cut science exactly to fit revealed religion. And so you have a very anti-Christian sentiment expressed by the first president of Cornell University, and so these universities founded in the 1600s and the 1700s are very Christian, a lot of times formed like Harvard, for the training of clergy, for the training of Puritan ministers, or uh, Brown, for the training of Baptist ministers. And by the 1800s now, no, it's not, it's not for that. What it's for is we've got all these people coming into the city. We need to get them trained so they can do science and, and be good for business. So, for example, in Harvard, in 1886, they stop requiring students to go to chapel. So that means, like, from the 1600s to the 1880s, if you went to Harvard, you had to go to chapel. I mean, it's just a totally different idea to me, isn't it? But that's the way it was for most of its history. In America, one of uh, the uh, ways that people fought against these criticisms and also the liberal Protestantism, which they felt was, uh, or just giving in to, to the criticisms, was the fundamentalist movement, which started in the year 1910. And it's funny because today you only use the F word, especially in a university, to insult someone. I mean, it's about the worst thing you could get called is a fundamentalist these days. But the fundamentalists actually called themselves fundamentalists, and they were proud of it, and it was... Uh, their own term in 1910 when they produced the, uh, uh, a booklet, a series of booklets called The Fundamentals, A Testimony to the Truth, and they start circulating. They contained 100 articles by leading Christian conservatives, including B.B. Warfield, James Orr, H.C.G. Moole, and C.I. Schofield, a famous uh, 
dispensationalists who produced the Schofield uh, Study Bible. These people had huge differences. The names I just listed to you and these authors of these fundamentalist articles, they had huge theological differences. But they all agreed on these basic fundamentals. And they used that sort of unity approach to fight against the liberal influence in the universities and in their, their churches. So what were the fundamentals? Inerrancy of the Bible, verbal inspiration, deity of Christ, virgin birth, Christ lived a sinless life, substitutionary atonement, bodily resurrection, Christ's ascension, Christ's bodily second coming, that, I, that sin is real, not an imaginary thing inside your heart, that God's grace is not based on human effort, but is the source of salvation, and that the church is God's institution for building Christians and spreading the gospel. Those are the fundamentals. If you don't believe those fundamentals, you are not a fundamentalist. If you do, then you are according to, at least in the 1910s, in these early years of the 20th century. In 1922, in order to fight against the fundamentalists, Harry Emerson Fosdick preached the sermon, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? at the New York City First Presbyterian Church. He was a Northern Baptist, and his sermon was printed and distributed to 130,000 ordained Protestants. He left the Presbyterians and founded New York's Riverside Church. Very influential uh, preacher at that time. So he is a liberal Protestant fighting against the conservative Protestants who were known at this time as fun fundamentalists. And then in 1925, the ACLU supported a man named John Scopes who intentionally violated the Butler Act in Tennessee and taught evolution in school. Uh, teaching evolution was illegal in Tennessee in 1925. And so this man here, John Scopes, intentionally violated that act to cause this matter to go to court so that the, the issue could blow up in the public. Scopes was actually found guilty, but uh, his and fined to pay $100, but he, the verdict was overturned on a technicality. This trial got to be known as the Scopes Monkey Trial in uh, Dayton, Tennessee, and it was a, a time that drew intense national publicity, and what it really was was a way for the fundamentalists and the modernists to fight in public and to try out their arguments on each other. And so a lot of what was criticized was the biblical account of creation, and you had your, your absolute best uh, lawyers representing both sides, arguing this out, Newspapers going crazy for this thing and publicizing it. And this really does a lot to spread the idea that science and religion are absolute enemies that can never be reconciled, which historically has never been the case. I mean, Isaac Newton published more on theology than he wrote on science. I mean, you look at any of the greats who started the science of their fields, they're all, they're all religious. In 1929, J. Gresham Machen led the conservative withdrawal from Princeton. And so Princeton splits up, and he leads a group, Machen leads a group, to found Westminster Theological Seminary in Pennsylvania. And so what happens when the universities go liberal? The conservatives leave the university and start new universities. Okay? And so that's how we got Westminster Theological Seminary in Pennsylvania. And Machen was a, a major leader of the fundamentalist movement. In 1932, the General Association of Regular Baptists formed 
from the Northern Baptist Convention. Again, the Baptist splitting over the issue of can we, can we trust the Bible? Is it accurate? Or do we go with the liberal, the liberal approach? So you can, if somebody says to you, I'm a Baptist, that doesn't mean, that, I mean, that, that doesn't necessarily mean what they, you can't really tell what they believe just based on the word Baptist. It's like, well, what kind of Baptist? Because you have Southern Baptists, you've got Northern Baptists, and now in 1932, you have the General Association of Regular Baptists. For example, then the, the Presbyterians, in 1937, the group split off, and you have the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and the Bible Presbyterian Church, both splitting off from the other Presbyterians because they sense their denomination is going liberal, and they want to preserve the conservative beliefs of John Calvin. Okay, that was a bit of a mouthful, but I did want to just touch on some Unitarian history because it, it all happens during the same period. And I'll, I'll, I promise to make this last part quick, and then we'll take a break, okay? And like I said before, the next one's more cheery, okay? We're going to get missionaries. It's going to be great. Ventus movement, the Second Great Awakening in America, people repenting of their sins, all at the same time as this other stuff happening. All right, so the Unitarians, I left you in England with them. And there, there was a whole con, uh, controversy within the Church of England. Eventually, the Unitarians lost. But then I mentioned there was a man named Theophilus Lindsay who did found a Unitarian church in London. Now, Theophilus Lindsay and Joseph Priestley, they, they are Unitarians, but they are not necessarily agreeing with all the teachings of the Bible. Okay? So, for example, Joseph Priestley in 1782 published a book a History of the Corruptions of Christianity, where he talks about how uh, doctrines got confused and corrupted. But also he mentioned, he rejects the devil and demons. He rejects the birth narratives uh, of Jesus, the idea of the virgin birth. And he believes that Jesus even made mistakes sometimes when he was interpreting the Old Testament. So this kind of Unitarianism we get from Joseph Priestley and Theophilus Lindsay is, is not really the same as what we saw in Poland, because the issue there is not the Bible, whether we should accept all of what the Bible teaches. It's, the Bible teaches that the Father is the only God. That's what the Polish brethren are saying. That's what the Hungarians are saying. That's what they're saying in northern Italy. That's what they were saying earlier in England. But now we have this whole other movement that I've been talking about. And so these Unitarians, Theophilus Lenzi and Joseph Priestley, are very influential in starting up what's eventually called the Unitarian Universalists, but at this time would just be called uh, Unitarians, or I would call liberal Unitarians. Joseph Priestley immigrated to America in 1792 because he was so fiercely persecuted in England that they burned his home to the ground. And uh, he was influential in, in starting the first Unitarian Church of Philadelphia in 1796. In 1785, James Freeman, a Unitarian, became the minister of King's Chapel in Boston. This is a major uh, moment because this church, King's Chapel, was the first Anglican church in, the, in New England, and now it's the first Unitarian church. It switched to become the first Unitarian church, and it's still there to this day. He used an adapted version of the Book of Common Prayer. So it feels like a Church of England, an Anglican or Episcopalian service, but it's Unitarian, so there are no Trinitarian formulas at the end of each of the prayers. And at first, the congregation just wanted to be tolerant of Unitarians, but eventually it became Unitarian itself. 
And it still has that feel to this day. If you go to King's Chapel, it has this very high church feel with robes and stained glass and choirs and set liturgy and so on. In 1805, Harvard gets its first Unitarian president, Henry Ware. And, and of course, uh, this had been uh, a place for Puritan ministers. And now it becomes, in the 1800s, uh, Harvard becomes a place to train Unitarian ministers of the more liberal variety that I've been talking about. In 1806, conservatives at Harvard, frustrated by the Unitarianism, split and formed another seminary called Andover Theological Seminary, also in the same area. In 1819, William Ellery Channing preached a sermon called Unitarian Christianity in Baltimore, which popularized Unitarianism outside of Boston, outside of New England. And he publicly preached against the Trinity. He preached against limited atonement. He said the scripture is not authoritative. And he believed in a rationalistic, natural religion. In 1825, the American Unitarian Association was founded to link all these Unitarian churches under one banner. By the mid-19th century, a lot of the churches in New England, these congregational churches, had split and had to leave because the Unitarians were now the majority. And again, this is the liberal Unitarians are the majority. And so the conservatives have to go out and found new congregationalist churches. And then the last thing to mention is Ralph Waldo Emerson in 1836 was known as what we call a transcendentalist. This is somebody who thought people were essentially good. It's a philosophical idea that agreed with Hume on empirical proofs about God not being possible. He liked Schleiermacher's idea that the Bible is human as well as divine. And he wrote an essay called Nature. And so this sort of takes the Unitarian movement in a certain direction. They start having social experiments like Brook Farm, Fruitlands, and Walden. And it becomes more and more liberal until the point when today, for example, I don't know exactly when this happened, but today you don't have to be, believe in God to be part of the Unitarian Church. Believing in God is, is optional. That's a long story as well, but we're out of time. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for tuning in. Next time, we'll look at missionaries and Adventists, especially in America. We'll be focusing more and more in on America in the last couple of lectures here, just because there's so much that happens around the world in the 19th and 20th centuries that we just needed to limit it for our scope for this class. So stay tuned for that. Please share this episode with your friends on social media if you found it helpful. And we'll see you next time. Remember, the truth has nothing to fear.